All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Did it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried you, your husband, are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you um, praise and thanks that you've called us to be a part of your family, Lord, that you've put us here this morning, and um, Lord, that you've, you've given us your word. Lord, help me to clearly explain it, and to, um, yeah, just Lord, that it would make sense, Lord, that we'd understand how it applies to us as, as we look at it. Lord, I ask that, um, that we'd all be working, um, and that your spirit would be working in all of us to figure out what this says to me here this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. During some time last year, I was, I was a little bit more prepared with my kids' talk, and I was doing a kids' talk about giving, about giving. And I got up and I started by sharing with the kids about how I once, shared, I once received a toothbrush for Christmas. Now, at first... That, that Christmas that I got that toothbrush as my Christmas gift, I thought it was a joke and I thought it was the worst present ever. But then I, I could tell the kids that now in my maturity, I could see that it was one of the best presents because it was a really useful present. And as I was sharing this story with the kids, I don't know if you remember it, but my mum was obviously listening and recalling buying me that toothbrush. It was an electric toothbrush. It was a flash one. Okay. This year I celebrated Christmas at Manila with Tara's family. So on New Year's Day our family gathered back up here 
Um, it was our day off from Beechnish and we had Christmas together. And surely enough, my mum had been listening so well and thought that I valued it so much that I had another brand new electric toothbrush <laughs> as a Christmas gift that year. Um, bit, of a, bit of a predictable story, but the point is I asked for something and I received it in a roundabout way I asked for something. Our text that we're looking at today is a continuation of what we looked at last week and a much more impressive example of people asking for something and people getting it. The key to understanding the enormous generosity and unity that we see in the first half of our passage is looking back just before in our passage to what the people have just prayed for. From verse um, 32 of chapter 4, and this should be fresh in your memory if you were here last week, we see the believers respond to the hostility that they faced in sharing the gospel by praying back to God. And the key point of their prayer that I wish to highlight is their request of God in verse 29 to 30. So have your Bible open and we'll look back to that. Chapter 4, verse 29. This is what they prayed and asked of God. Now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Two of those specific things that they asked for was one, for boldness, and two, that signs and wonders would be performed. And that's what we see in our text today. We see bold speaking. It's there in verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. That was st- God had answered that prayer and they were still, in spite of everything that was going on, speaking the word of God boldly. And, and not just bold speaking, but we see wonders in their generosity. We see wondrous generosity. We see um, wondrous and more so wondrous unity. They've asked that God would perform wonders among them and he's brought these people together. Now, I don't know what your idea of, of a wondrous sign is, but isn't that a wondrous thing, that people would actually be united together, that they'd be one in heart and mind? That's, that's to me, real wondrous, wondrous... What, what, what did they pray for? Signs and wonders. What's, what's a bigger sign of something happening than people who naturally don't get along with each other just as in general, even amongst our families. We know that people don't come together and yet God's brought them together. It's a miraculous sign. It's a miraculous wonder. In fact, and all those prayers of healing and other kinds of miraculous signs are answered later in chapter 5. If you look ahead, there's a heading, the apostles heal many, and it's just an account that they do continue to heal from verse 12 on. But what I'm suggesting is that one of the miraculous signs, one of these answers to prayer, is that God has bound them, has bound them in unity with a common purpose. So in verse 32 we read, All the believers were one in heart and in mind. Other translations literally say the full number of those who had believed, everyone who trusted in Jesus, was unified, like, like everyone, excluding no one. All the followers of Jesus. They were truly like one organism functioning together and they were also one in their purpose. This reminds me somewhat of like, 
old cartoons, like Mickey Mouse cartoons, and, and they go on a picnic, and you always see the ants coming, marching two by two to steal everything out of the hamper, okay? It's kind of like that. They were, they were like the ants, all there together, working together, doing the, almost like they had different roles and stuff, but they're all there together for that one purpose. And the reason for their unity, the reason why they're unified, is simple. It's because of Jesus. They're, they're unified in Jesus so that they're bold in proclaiming him. They're unified in Jesus because he is the one that has saved them. It's simple. They're unified in Jesus because Jesus is the one that's shown them truth. Because he has planted his spirit in them. They're unified for a purpose, that they might follow him together relying on his spirit's strength. And they, they're unified because they share the same joy and tenderness in their heart and gratitude that comes from being loved by God. They're unified because he has not just given them a purpose but restored them to the purpose and the intentions that God had for them as people from the beginning. They're unified. They're one in heart and mind. So the question is, do we here at Evans Head Presbyterian Church have that same unity, that same oneness in heart and mind? We, I remember we discussed this at our Bible study because it was one of the questions. And we agreed that, that in most cases we do. We're pretty unified. I, I feel that we are unified as a body of believers. The points that we're unified about, so the things that we're one on, are the same as what those first Christians were. The, the trusting in Jesus, him being our saviour. And I honestly can't see any disunity among our congregation, which is a good thing. There's no kind of like talking behind backs in our church. There's no dissatisfaction with our leadership. And if there is, we're open and honest and we pray through things. We're not disunified. We're working as one. When it comes, however to the unity of both that heart and mind like these first Christians had, do we have that same sort of level of unity, if you can picture it that way? Are we as unified as them? We're not disunified, but we, are we as unified? As I see it, a church will fall short of that first century, that Acts Christian church, fall short of their unity by either having disunity, that is, people are not getting along, or fall short in a different way, by not letting the gospel have a big enough impact, letting that gospel impact us enough. So we'll either, be, we'll either not have that unity that they had by being disunified, or not letting the gospel impact us enough. I feel, when I look around at our church, at some points in time, our congregation can veer toward that, that latter, that not having that same unity because we don't let the gospel be big enough. We don't, we don't think highly enough of the gospel. And not letting that gospel, the message of Jesus, the thing that saved us, cause us to devote ourselves to one another in that same way that we see in, in the first century church, in the Acts church. So have you realised the enormity of the gospel? All those things that I mentioned before, that Jesus has taken us from, from death to life, that 
We're restored to God, restored to the purposes that he had for us when he created us. Jesus has taken you from being apart from God, separated by your own sin, and he's made you his child. You're destined for heaven and filled with his spirit for a purpose, to put to death your sinful nature that's eating away at you. That's common to all of us. The gospel's a huge thing. It's what saved us. It's brought us back to God. So we should bind together, we should bind together in the same way that that first century church did, that we'd be one in heart and mind like all the believers. Paul in the book of Philippians puts it in a really succinct and easy way, probably better than my explaining has been so far. So I'm just going to read this to you. It's from Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one and Spirit in purpose. If you're encouraged that God saved you, if you're encouraged that you're united with Christ, if you're comforted by his love, then the outworking of that should be unifying with everyone else who's like that. It's logical, isn't it? And it's what God calls us to do. Now, next in our text today, after that phrase, they were all one in heart and mind, we say the everyday outworking of that unity, of, of not just their unity, but their prayers before also. From the second part of verse 32, this is what Luke tells us of the believers. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Really, this is saying that those, the, that early church acknowledged that all the things that they had really belonged to God. They were saved by God. Their whole lives was God's. God had brought that back at the price of Jesus. And so they, they acknowledged that not just them, but all the stuff that they had was God's to use as well. In their view, they didn't really possess anything. Things were legally theirs, but they treated it like it was common property, like it was there to serve one another. And the reason they do that is because they realised that they'd been given everything that they need in Jesus. The other things that they had were really now only useful for serving God and for serving other people. They were generous because of Jesus. Jesus had given them all they need. Jesus has given us all that we need. The only need that we have is salvation, isn't it? The only need that we have is to be restored to God. And God's given us that freely in Jesus. There's nothing that we need to claim ownership of anymore. We can forget about all that. Jesus promises that in Matthew chapter 5 or 6 that God takes care of all those needs. He dresses, dresses the fields beautifully. He dresses Solomon beautifully. And even more than that, he'll take care of us. We have that promise. And, but at the same time, we don't need anything else. We have Jesus. A couple of things we should note about their generosity. When people shared, it was selfless. They didn't consider things as being their own. So they're not concerned, they're not being selfish, but they're being selfless. For them, if they saw a need, they gave. That's all they needed. 
That's the only excuse they needed to give things was that there was a need there. And the second thing to note about their generosity is it was actually sacrificial. It cost them something. From verse 34, it says, There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to everyone as they had need. It cost them things. They sacrificed things like their houses, their property, to give to the need that they saw. They gave up their homes for the needs of others. And it was sacrificial in another sense, that they gave it up to the apostles to distribute it as the apostles saw that there was a need. Essentially, the way I see it, is they're giving up their things for the work of the gospel. They're giving it to the apostles who are boldly proclaiming the word of Jesus that that might happen more effectively, that they might do that through loving people by giving them gifts and holding out the word at the same time. This generosity is radical. We don't see generosity like this. They were, they were what I heard someone say, open-handed givers. It was, like, it was like they considered their packet of Tim Tams to never run out and they didn't want any for themselves. Giving sincerely, not hoping to get any back, anything back. Now, the, most, the, the strangest thing to note here is that this isn't a command to us to give away everything that we own. It isn't a command to us. But what we see is that their giving was actually voluntary. They wanted to do it and there was no one telling them that they had to. I'm not standing here today telling you that you've got to go and sell your house and give all the proceeds to the church. Okay? Their giving was voluntary. Nowhere were they giving because any, any kind of law, the law had been abolished by Jesus. The idea of a tithe had been abolished by Jesus. They gave because they genuinely wanted to. They gave because they'd been given to. Okay? They'd been given Jesus. They'd been given everything that they need. And beyond, that voluntary, beyond it being voluntary, when they gave, generally they gave everything. So we see that it's even more sacrificial, that they give up everything for the needs that they see. So the question is, are we the same? Are we the same as these guys? Have we had the gospel impact us that much that we're that generous? What motivates us to be generous with our money and material resources, like our cars and our homes and the such? What, what motivates us to do that? Are you motivated... To give because Jesus gave his life for you. Is that why you put your cheque or your, or your envelope in the, in the collection every week? We're going to see in a minute that if we give for any other reason, that people might look at us, that, that we might think we're better off with God. If we give and are generous for any other reason than in response to Jesus, we're being hypocrites. That's what we're going to see in a minute. But just a final note that that might encourage you to be generous. One of the great temptations that exist in this world for us as Christians and one of the greatest things that offends God amongst his people is when people worship mammon, when people worship money and things. By, by mammon, I mean like our idolising or desiring our m things like money, possessions, houses... Cars, just generally stuff. Thinking and desiring and idolising stuff that we own, that we have, that we want. 
Our materialism offends God. It's difficult for us to be in a close relationship with God when we're consumed by our wants. Hopefully you can testify to that in your own life. It's difficult to be in close relationship with God when we're consumed by that wanting, that desiring for stuff and for things. And we have to confess that both the society and world that we live in yells at us that we need this stuff, that we need all sorts of things. Our consumer culture drives us to this selfishness. It's ingrained in our lives. It's in our televisions, on our radios, it's in our face, everywhere we go, that we need stuff, we want stuff. The idea of ownership is so firmly implanted in our head that we're so reluctant to be generous that it's not funny. I don't know if you... You should have noticed that it's an election year. It's an election year both in our state and a federal election's coming up. And what they're finding in both cases, more so in the federal election, that our country's gone through this time of huge economic prosperity. We're, we're generally earning more than we ever have before. Yet we're seeing the cost that relationships are dying. We're seeing all those kind of costs. People are out killing themselves to get stuff. They're in this gross love affair with money and possessions and relationships are going by the wayside for the sake of owning. So here's the final note that I'm trying to get to. In light of that picture, there's this radical other way. It's radical when you think about it. Just listen to this. Materialism is beaten by generosity. That generosity that the Acts Christians had beats our materialism, beats that desire within us to want stuff. While a materialistic heart asks, what can I get next? The generous heart, in contrast, asks, what can I give or what can I share next? Which heart should we have? The heart that responds to Jesus is the heart that's generous, that looks for what the next need is and the next opportunity to give is. It's the generous heart. That's the heart of the Christian. That's what thankfully the Holy Spirit's working inside of us to produce. The generous heart. The heart that overcomes materialism by being generous. Now, we can see that although this looks like a perfect example of, of unity and generosity, we see in our passage that it isn't all perfect. In verse 36... We hear of this guy, this example of the generosity. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. An example of generosity. Big generosity. Takes, takes all the money and puts it at the apostles' feet for them to use. And then we get this account of Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, in that alone, there's nothing wrong with that. He hasn't done anything wrong in doing that. The thing that's not noted, that, but that we find out later, is the problem with what he's done is he's gone and said, here's all the money that I've earned from selling my field. That'll, that'll become apparent. Peter, Peter knows what's going on. 
still filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter knows what's going on. And he says back to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. We remember that we learnt before the vol- the giving was voluntary. He could have given as much as he wanted. He could have kept back for himself as much as he wanted. It was still generous. But we find out that he's actually lying to the Holy Spirit. After he dies, we'll come back to that in a second, but his wife comes in and this is where we pick up what's happened. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. The truth? No, that's not the price. But she didn't say it. She wanted, he wanted, they wanted glory. They wanted to be looked at as one of those generous people that gave everything that they had from their land. They wanted people to look at them. They were generous for the wrong reason. They weren't generous because they were one in heart and mind with all the other believers. They weren't generous because of what Jesus had done. They were being generous so that people would look at them and think that they were better. They were hypocrites. Hypocrisy is pretending to be someone that you're not. That's what those guys were doing. They weren't being generous at all. They were pretending to be generous. Yet, Peter knows, God knows, that by doing that, it says that they're lying to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's pretty harsh. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. You can't deceive God. That's what it teaches us. We can't trick God. We might trick everyone else around us, but we're not going to trick God. He's going to know. Another note about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy makes it hard for people to believe in what is good. We see a pretty harsh judgment here. We see both of them instantly die at the apostles' feet. Now, in preparing this and listening to someone else preach on this, they suggested that God did that in order that the reputation of the believers wouldn't be be, um, made bad, I can't think how to express it, wouldn't be brought down by that event that they were judged that instantly. For us, judgment comes through differently today by God making us live with it. If we've done something wrong, if we've deceived people and been hypocrites, generally the way God judges us is convicts us of it and makes us live with it. But it makes it hard when we're hypocrites for people to believe in what is good. If we're hypocrites, not just in our giving, but in our Christian life, To the people around us in our community, our hypocrisy makes it hard for people to believe in Jesus, in what is good. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to buy a reputation. They were not one in heart and unified with the rest of the believers. God demands that his believers are honest and pure. When we act in a Christian way, but are really looking for praise, we're lying to God. Our application from this lesson is, don't be hypocritical. It doesn't work. It's that simple. Don't be a hypocrite. Do what you say and mean what you say. Don't pretend to be someone you're not. God sees and knows. 
the praise given by God for being a good and faithful servant in his kingdom, let me encourage you by this, far outweighs the empty praise of man or woman that you might get from doing something like that. You being faithful and, and, and following God the way that he wants you to is worth far more than any kind of praise that you can get by pretending to be generous in that same way. In being unified as a church and as a body, we really need to, to be working at being rid of our hypocrisy. We need to be people who say what we mean and mean what we say and, and let our life back that up with our action. We can see quite clearly that the gospel of Christ should compel us to be generous. I, I need to seriously consider how generous I am in response to Jesus. How generous I can be, how much he's blessed me with that I can then use to serve other people. God had one son and that was what he gave up to serve our need. He was the servant king that came and sacrificed his whole life for us. How, how much more should we be generous with the things that we have? His life was sufficient to save ours. Our lives and our wealth and the things that we have are sufficient to serve the needs of the others. So let, let Jesus Christ and let his gospel compel us to do that. And let's be united Let's be united like those first Christians were. We need to pray that we would. But let's focus our eyes on Jesus that we might do that because that's the only way that it happens. I'm going to pray now and I'm going to encourage you to pray with me for things that I miss out in the application of this that we would be doing this, that we would be generous, that we would be united and that we wouldn't be hypocritical because that's the right response to what Jesus has done for us. That's the right response that God wants from us. Let's pray, hey? Heavenly Father, you're a gracious God, Lord. You sent Jesus to take away our sin, Lord. Your, your valued son, your, you in flesh, came down and gave his life for us. Lord, Lord, we ask that that would unite us, Lord, that we'd be one in that purpose of, of spreading that gospel boldly to people. Lord, that we'd... we'd with that gospel take out and serve the needs of the people around us Lord in our area there's a, a particular lot of specific needs Lord don't blind us to that don't let us be judgmental toward those needs and why they're there but Lord just let us be humble and serve them let us be humble and give of ourselves for them both our time and the, and the resources that you've blessed us with Lord, in response to your gospel. And Lord, in response to your gospel, don't let us look for praise in doing that. Let us be humble as we serve you in that, that we don't be hypocritical and that we don't, don't have a, put a bad reputation out against your name. Lord, help us to be genuine and humble as we serve you and unite together. Lord, we acknowledge that that only happens through the grace of your Holy Spirit and through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask and pray, Lord, that you'd um, empower us through him to do that, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the courage and the conviction to be able to do that. And Lord, as we do that, that people would respond to you, Lord, that you'd soften the hearts of those with needs around us as we come to them with their greatest need, their need to be forgiven by you and restored back to you. And Lord, as we serve them, 
with their other needs as well. In Jesus' name, we praise you and thank you and ask this of you. Amen.